Matthew chapter 5. And we're finishing the last of the contrast verses, the last of the antitheses verses, the last of the verses in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus reminds them of the common religious teaching of the day and then contrasts that with his own teaching which fulfills the law. And I'm not going to be preaching a Mother's Day sermon like I did last year, like I had it sometimes in the past, uh, but I will hopefully be bringing some applications to moms along the way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. And boy, if this isn't the height of Christian ethics, I don't know what is. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, would you come now and help us in our great weakness? Lord, there are even parts of the sermon that I'm fear I may not be able to say just right, and I want to help your people, especially to help us to love our enemies. Lord, we need you to guide our minds and to open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things in your word. And I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Through many years of my childhood, I lived near prisons. And I lived near prisons, as I've told you before, because my father worked in federal prisons for his entire career, first as a psychologist, then as an assistant warden, then as a deputy warden, and then finally as a warden for over a decade. And in my first year of marriage, when I was about 25 years old, uh, Christy uh, was actually working up at the minimum security unit of one of these prisons, and she was getting to share the gospel with a number of the guys in the prison. It finally got to the place where, yeah, maybe this isn't such a good idea anymore. And uh, so we actually worked it out so that I could get up, come up there and teach a Bible study uh, to the prisoners. And so Christy and I, in our first year of marriage, got to teach this glorious Bible study uh, to just a wide variety of men who were in a federal prison uh, doing hard, crime, hard time for serious crimes. Now, in all the time my dad was a warden or deputy warden of a penitentiary, uh, he, was, he was attacked by two men. There were two men who actually physically assaulted him during his time as a warden, and one of them was in that Bible study uh, that Christy and I were leading. And after a number of weeks, uh, this guy turns to me and he says, is there a place on earth where a guy like me and a guy like your dad can sit down together as brothers. If if you know the proverbial softball, 
There it was coming in at 45 miles an hour, and I was ready. And I, I said to him, yes, yeah, absolutely. First at the foot of the cross, where all sinners are equalized, both in how sinful they are and in the forgiveness of their sins, and second in the church of Jesus Christ, where God gathers all sinners to be part of his people, whether they've been Pharisees or pedophiles. He brings them to himself and covers them under his blood and makes them his people. And the reason I was able to give that answer is because our God is a God who loves his enemies. During World War II, the Ten Boom family, that's not Ten Booms, but one Dutch last name, the Ten Boom family of Holland took in Jews who were fleeing Nazi persecution. And the Ten Booms protected these Jewish men and women from death because they were a Christian family. And eventually, though, the Ten Booms were arrested uh, for their brave protection of these Jewish men and women that Hitler wanted dead. And two of the Ten Boom daughters, Betsy and Corey, wound up in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And there they were, stripped of their clothes, stripped of their dignity, stripped of sufficient nutrition, and they were left to physically flounder. And eventually Betsy, one of the daughters, died floundering under the cruelty of the Nazi guards. Now Corey, on the other hand, outlived the war. She survived the concentration camp. Uh, she outlived the war. And she went on after World War II to have a ministry of writing and speaking in many places about God's work through her family and his marvelous gift of forgiveness. And in 1947, to mark, mark the date, 1947, World War II has been over two years. It's fresh. Berlin is still full of bombed out buildings everywhere. Europe is still roiling from World War II. Anyway, 1947, she returns to Germany to speak on forgiveness. And during a talk in Germany where she's speaking on forgiveness, commending forgiveness, and especially emphasizing that when God forgives us, he casts our sins into the bottom of the sea. She's saying this and she looks out and sees that a German guard, not just any German guard, but a German guard who had overseen her in Ravensbrück is there, a man who she said I knew had seen me pass by naked, who'd watched my sister wither and die. She sees this man in the congregation. And then after her talk, when people are coming up to talk to her, he starts approaching her. She starts to be approached by the man who was her captive. And here's what she says about that incident. She writes, Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time, Corey says, since my release that I had been face to face with one of the captors and my blood seemed to freeze. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. 
He was saying, I was a guard there. She realized he didn't remember her. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. Corey says, I whose sin had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held, up, held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. She knew that you had to forgive in order to receive God's forgiveness. Why? Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. Amen. And the reason Corey Ten Boom was able to extend her hand in forgiveness was because God is a God who loves his enemies. In the passage we're looking at this morning, Jesus calls us to be like God. It's that simple. To be a people who love their enemies. Here, the king of the universe, the Jewish Messiah, who's come to preach the sermon that explains the ethics of his kingdom, he tells his people, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, you may not have a dramatic story like the two I just told. But you may have enemies that are just as hard to deal with and maybe harder to deal with because they don't put you in quite so dramatic a situation. The Bible tells us that one of the sets of enemies the Christian will have is enemies from their own household. A person's enemies will be those of his own Household, says Matthew 10, 36. And Matthew 10 tells us, do not think I have come to bring peace 
to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So what that means is the teaching of this passage can help us learn to love wayward children who reject the gospel, antagonistic parents who may sneer at our commitment to the gospel, and even a spouse who is opposed to our faith. The teaching of this passage can help us face all kinds of persecution from our enemies. We have to remember what we learned earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. The persecution is not something that just happens with a sword, but it's something that can happen with a sneer. That persecution is not just happen, happening when someone is hunted for their faith, but it's, it's happening even when someone is hated for their faith. Jesus keeps the definition of persecution broad, and so he keeps the definition of enemies broad too. And how do you love your enemies in the office? How do you love your enemies in your daily life? Or how do you love Christians who shouldn't strictly be called enemies, but there's enough sinfulness left in the church that sometimes Christians can act an awful lot like enemies? How do you love them? The passage we're looking at can help us. And it can help us to know how to love our enemies by giving us through three truths we need to love our enemies. I'm gonna tell you the first, the three truths here. Three truths to help you love your enemies. One, you need to acknowledge that they are real. You need to acknowledge that they are real. If that sounds overly simplistic, it is, but we need it. Two, we need to recognize that human love is not enough and no amount of theology can ever justify merely human love. Human love is not enough and no amount of theology can ever justify merely human love. And then third, we need to keep our eyes on God the Father if we're gonna love our enemies. So. First, notice the importance of acknowledging that our enemies are real. Notice the way Jesus speaks. He says, love your enemies. He does not say, realize that those who seem to be set against you actually have hearts of gold, they're just misguided. No, he says that these ones opposing you for your proclamation of the gospel deserve the term enemies. That's why he says, love your enemies. Not because they aren't actually enemies, but because they are actually enemies. On one occasion, uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is preaching the gospel, and he's trying to get the gospel through to a government official called a proconsul. And between him and the proconsul is a guy named Elymas the Magician. And Elymas the Magician is creating a big hullabaloo that gets in the way of of the proconsul hearing the gospel. And listen to the moral clarity with which Paul speaks to Elymas. 
Paul looked intently at him, Acts 13, 9, and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. And when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Paul did not call Elymas a faithful member of his respected faith community. He called him an enemy. He called him one who was against the gospel. And we've made so many kinds of terms. When there are scholars who deny the gospel of Jesus Christ, we call them respectful scholars who've come to a difference of conclusion rather than enemies of the gospel. But that kind of moral clarity is actually vital if we're actually going to love the people. Actually diminishing the enemies of the gospel seems gracious, but cuts us off from the nerve root that would give them grace. When we recognize a person for who they are and what's happening in their heart before God, we actually become empowered to love them the way Christ loved them. I think as Christians, we're often afraid to call people our enemies because we fear that if we make such a negative assessment of them, then we will be inclined to hate them, to be rude to them, to interact with them in a way that is hateful and maybe even harmful. I think another reason we're afraid to call people our enemies, when we see them oppose God and his ways, is that the implications just seem too dark and hopeless. We know that if someone is an enemy of God, then they're under the judgment of God, and their future is full of the wrath of God. And sometimes we wince at the thought of calling them enemies and hold back from calling a spade a spade because we don't want to make such a negative, eternal assessment. We decline to call an enemy an enemy, but when we do that, we actually cut them off from being labeled in such a way that would provoke us to love them. Some of you are dealing with children who oppose the things of God who roll their eyes at the gospel of Christ. It might feel like calling them an enemy would break your heart and destroy your hope, but you're wrong. Calling an enemy an enemy can actually be a pathway to finding new resources to love them. It's hard to call a friend a friend when they keep hating you. But if you call an enemy an enemy, you'll find resources in God and in Christ to love them just like Jesus did. Second truth we need to hear is this. Human love is utterly insufficient to fulfill the demands of Christ and no amount of theologizing can ever justify it. That's a mouthful. Human love is utterly insufficient to ever fulfill the demands of Christ and no amount of theologizing can never justify it. What do I mean by human love? Well, three times in this passage, shockingly actually, short passage, three times in this passage, Jesus gives us illustrations of what we need to call merely human love. Now, human love isn't all bad. It holds the world together in many ways. Much common grace comes to us through merely human love. 
but Jesus looks at it as utterly insufficient to fulfill his own commands and his own desires. Three times it's mentioned. First time it's mentioned, or the second time it's mentioned, I'm gonna jump in the middle actually. The second time it's mentioned is when Jesus says in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So there's the maxim. There's the maximum that human love works on, loving those who love you. Do you love all the people that hate you? Do you love your haters? No. Do you love those who love you? You bet. Are you devoted to everyone? No. Are you devoted to those who are devoted to you? Yes. Love those who love you. That's the maxim. And Jesus says, even the biggest low-life scum on the planet do that. Because that's what tax collectors were regarded as in Jesus' day. Now, tax collectors always have a good time establishing a good reputation in any culture. But they were really killing it in Jesus' day because they aligned themselves with the Roman oppressors and often gouged the people for more taxes than were owed and got themselves a thorough, despicable name. But guess what? Fridays after work, down at the bar, the tax collectors could jump in there and Jerry would meet with Tom and the tax collectors could have a drink together because everyone's got some group where everybody knows their name. Everybody's got some people where they're their friends. It's amazing, you know, uh, a lot of the meta advertising, a lot of the Facebook advertising is that it brings people together. But it's interesting, if you watch the commercials on how they bring people together, they actually are boasting that they bring people who are already like-minded together. Social media has an amazing way of connecting people who already agree. It's slightly less successful in helping people who don't agree. In other words, social media is good at what people were already good at. Loving those who love you. Loving those who are like you. It's human love. It's merely human love. And Jesus says it's present not only in the tax collectors who are the dregs of society, fairly wealthy dregs of society, but the dregs of society, but it's also present in every other country except Israel. It's everywhere. That's what he says. If you look in verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles, that's Jesus' term and Paul's term for all the nations apart from Israel, do not the Gentiles do the same. This is what people do. They say hi to their friends. They greet their friends. They give their people a big hug, and they ignore people who are not their people. And it seems kind of heartless until you think about how friendly whites were to each other in the Jim Crow South. And it's not that they were, it's not they were mean to everyone. Please don't get that impression. But you called a certain people yours and you were friendly to them. And then another people were not your neighbors and you owed them very little. It's the same thing that drives gang warfare, clan warfare, it's the same thing that drives one nation to be fiercely patriotic to itself, which there's some appropriateness to that, but then hateful and just disregarding of the basic human rights of others. That we tend to put a certain group of people in one category that need to get loved, and other people make, don't make it into that category, they do not owe our love, which is why in the most debased Times in human history when people were doing the most wicked things, you'll still find dads who love their kids. 
You'll still see, find friends who were faithful to each other till they died. They were loving their neighbors. And they were hating their enemies. Now, Israel, amazing, these guys were good. I mean, if you haven't got that impression yet from going, studying the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't got the sense of these scribes and Pharisees, I mean, they were good. They were good. If you wanted some people who could get, dig deep into the Bible and find it, find a way to make it say everything they already believed, I mean, these guys could do it. These, were, these are your leaders, okay? So what they had done is they had dug into the Bible and they had got the Bible teaching basic Gentile ethics. Love those who love you. Hate those who don't. And so you read it right there in verse 30, 43. You have heard it said, this was the common religious teaching, had some roots in Moses, but it's the common religious teaching. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. Isn't it amazing that the Jews from the Bible wound up sounding just like the Gentiles? The scribes and the Pharisees who thought of themselves as a cut above were just like the tax collectors. In other words, they had managed to pull from the scriptures what justified their wrong human inclinations. To me, can I just stop right there for a second? That should give every one of us pause. These were serious Bible scholars. And they had found a way to make the Bible come at them in a way that it challenged nothing. And all of us are capable of that. And it's only the grace of God if we can mine the scriptures to such a degree that they actually press on us our need for Christ and our need for Christ's likeness. If that's happening, you are getting the right message from the Bible. And if it's not happening, you have twisted the Bible to fit your own preconceived notions. Now, how did the Jews get this love your neighbor, hate your enemy? How did they get this? It's important that we think about this uh, together and, and think about it for some time and think about it at some depth. How did they get this teaching, love your neighbor, hate your enemy? Well, one way got, they got this teaching is that they understood that the Bible actually taught that you were to love your neighbor. That's what the Old Testament actually taught. So when, when the Jews of Jesus' day say, love your neighbor, they're quoting Bible. They're absolutely right. In Leviticus 19.18, it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So why did the Jews say love your neighbor? Because the Old Testament said love your neighbor. And why did the Jews think of that mainly meant Israel? Because right here it's saying, don't take vengeance or bear a grudge against your sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's talking about your own people. So the Jews, and I'm going to go real slow and be real repetitive. So if you're going, he's being real repetitive. It's just a ploy that I can go real deep eventually, hopefully. Or maybe I'll just be repetitive and confusing. We'll find out in just a few, a few months. But anyway, um, so, so the, the first idea here is that the reason the Jews said love your neighbor was because that was what the scriptures said. The scriptures said love your neighbor. The Jews said love your neighbor. Now then they said hate your enemy. And you won't find a verse that commands hating your enemy. The Jews added to the scripture this command Hate your enemy. 
But we don't want to get the idea that the Jews were just wingnuts who just picked this idea out of nowhere. They had some pretty serious reasons why they might summarize the Old Testament as a command to hate your enemy. Okay, they said, love your neighbor. Why'd they say, love your neighbor? Because the Old Testament said, love your neighbor. Then they said, hate your enemy. Why'd they say that? The Old Testament never says that. No, it never says it. But boy, there's a few things in there that might lead you to that conclusion, right? Like when Deuteronomy 23 says about Edom and Moab, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Or what about the command to destroy all the peoples in the promised land. Listen to Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek, that's one of the peoples they would destroy. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not not forget. And literally the way this gets applied in Joshua is they are to destroy the men, the women, and the children of everyone in the promised land. So the Bible doesn't say, hate your enemies, but the Jews weren't pulling stuff out of thin air. Or maybe you've read Psalm 139 and wondered, what do I do with that? Where King David, a man after God's own heart, says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So, the Old Testament never says hate your enemies. But the Jews weren't pulling out of thin air when they got the idea that maybe that was their responsibility, was to hate their enemies. Another passage Pastor Jeff reminded me of this week is, of course, the passage from Malachi. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Okay. They may not have been out of their minds, but they also weren't taking in the whole counsel of God. They may not have been out of their minds, but they also weren't taking in the whole counsel of God. If you're half with me, give me an Amen. I mean, if you're not, just kidding. Uh, anyway, so, uh, so love your, they say love your neighbor. Where'd they get that? They got that in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor. They said hate your enemies. Well, it didn't say that in the Old Testament. Where'd they get it? Well, they got it by putting together a lot of what seems like some pretty hateful things. But they weren't taking in the whole counsel of God. They were not taking in the whole counsel of God. Exodus 23, 4, 5 says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So you are to do your enemy good. This was also there in the Old Testament. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. 
lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn from his anger from him. In other words, if God sees you hating your enemy, God's going to turn on you. So there we've got it. The Old Testament, well, it doesn't say hate your enemies, but it certainly has enough text there that would make you think maybe that's the right thing to do. And then you go to the Old Testament, and there's other verses, seemingly opposite verses. Don't hate your enemy. Love your enemy. Feed your enemy. And then there's, on top of that, there's, there's people like Jonah. Go to your enemy and teach them about mercy. And so you've really got these two streams in the Old Testament. You've got two streams in the Old Testament. Well, here's what was happening in Jesus' day. The Pharisees had absolutized one of these streams. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They had taken the one, the one stream that accorded most with their own human nature, and they had absolutized it. This is God's command. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See, that's what God does. He loves Israel and he hates his enemies. And they'd absolutized that like that was God's eternal will for all time is love your neighbor, hate your enemy. How are we going to do better than the Pharisees? How are we going to put this together? Okay, what, what do we believe about the Bible? It's the word of? And it all is it's all what? True. And so when God says, love your enemy, that's true, right? And when he has a psalm that talks about hating your enemy, that person is right in some way. How do you put that together? And, and I'll be honest with you. It's one of the greatest discoveries I've ever found in the Old Testament. You know how to put that together? Do you, know, you know how to put together God says love your enemies and God looks like he's saying hate your enemies? you know how you put that together? You can't. You can't. Not without Jesus you can't. And there's multiple themes like this in the Old Testament. God is holy. He will not regard sinners. Come to me. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And there's a reason why scholars in our day, our day read the Old Testament and go, this could not have been written by one guy. This cannot have one divine author between it. It sounds like someone's having a split personality problem and that person in the Old Testament is God. There's a reason why people have that issue. Because there is no way to hold the streams of the Old Testament together without Jesus. And here's how they come together in Jesus. First of all, all of that hatred for enemies gets expressed by God in two places. One is in the final judgment at the end of the age when God will destroy all of his enemies. And Israel was pointing us forward to that. It was, it was reminding us that this is a God who has enemies. If you don't side with him, you are his enemy. And at the end of time, he will destroy you. So the one way that stream gets fulfilled is that Israel was pointing us to what Jesus is going to do on the last day. He is going to destroy his enemies. I suspect he will be 
the king who can pray the imprecatory psalms? Do I not hate them with a pure hatred? The other place that wrath, that anger, that hatred of sin gets expressed is in the cross of Jesus Christ. God hates his enemies, yes, and loves to make enemies his friends. And so he takes his son to pay the penalty for the sins of his enemies. And that's every one of us. Every single Christian is someone who has to say, in my past, I've been an enemy of God. How did you become a friend? Jesus. Jesus has made me a friend of God by being my friend, by coming and dying on the cross for my sins. So here's what's going on here. Repetition. The Jews had taken the Old Testament data, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, and they'd absolutized it. This is the will of God. We see he hates enemies, we're supposed to hate enemies too. And Jesus is going, whoa, 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 you're not putting the Old Testament together right. Here's the way this goes. In the Old Testament, you've got commands, to hate, you've got commands that are hateful towards enemies. Those are ultimately gonna be fulfilled in my judgment of all my enemies and on the cross where I die for sinners. But when I die for sinners, I'm modeling something that fulfills the law. I'm modeling something I want Christians to fulfill. I'm modeling for them the love of enemies. That's what Jesus is after. And that's why he says, listen to this, that's why he says to us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen to me, beloved. Israel displayed the judgment of God. Their destruction of the other nations displayed the judgment of God. And Jesus is going to fulfill that judgment of God. But Israel also pointed to a God who loves his enemies. And Jesus fulfills that love for enemies when he dies on the cross for sinners like us. Now listen to me carefully, and then I'm going to be done with this long theological excursus. Right now, at this time in history, it's not our job to display the judgment of God against ungodly sinners. Christians aren't to be pulling out swords or arming themselves for the destruction of the ungodly. Right now, our calling is to be just like our Lord on the cross. Through the whole of our human pilgrimage, we are to be loving our enemies. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, in order to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I'm going to answer that next week. So, the short answer is, I'm not kidding, the short answer to how to love your enemies is this, you celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly and remind yourself that you are an enemy of God and that he's made you his friend and that you're called to give that same kind of love to those around you. Father, we come before you. We pray that you would please give us your grace, your holiness, and your love, even for our enemies. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.